this year, of course, we're still on Reformation. All right. This is week 32 of 52. What? 32 of 52. 52. When we started this particular series, we wanted to examine the idea of being reformed, being changed. (coughs) Being changed um, because life has a way of changing us. And it is true. There are things that happen within our lives. Sin, testing, tragedy, loss, loss of jobs, loss of spouses, loss of parents, loss of family, loss of homes, houses, loss of relationships. Losses, I think, change us more than anything else. Would you agree? It has a way of showing you what and who you really are. When you lose something, you you recognize that. I lose many a golf balls (laughs) on the course, all right? Not as much as I did in the beginning, but I still lose some. Now, the balls that I want to find are not the prettiest, are not the cleanest, not even the most expensive. The ball that I want to find is the ball that I really missed that shot and I thought I had it. That's the ball I want to find. And, I mean, because I thought I had it, and I felt it. And it said, oop, and a dupe, and it went somewhere else. I am going to look for that ball for a very long time. And there are rules against looking for too long. You got two minutes to look for your ball. Then that's it. I'd be like, mm, I'm going to find this ball. There are certain things that reveal. So what does that say about me? Well, number one, when I get something wrong, I need to find a win. That's, that's, that's me. If I, if I mess something up, I'm looking for a win out of this. So eventually you'll hear me go, I found my ball. I found my ball. Shot thought he had me. That shot didn't have me. <laughs> thought he got me, but I got away, all right? This is true of me, and I put that ball right back in my pocket, and I, and I enjoy it. Many years after the true Reformation, that's Reformation with a capital R, all right, the event spurred most by Martin Luther's uh, writing and letters, the phrase that reveals what Reformation is throughout the body of Christ showed up. And it's, it's, it's a Greek phrase. It's Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. Yep, Reformata. All right, and it means the church reformed, always reforming. And this concept it began to show us that our our proclivity to sin and to be corrupted, because of those things, the church continuously needs to evaluate its proclamations, its theology, and its actions according to scripture. Because of corruption and sin, we will always be reforming in a sense. So this statement, this quote is talking about the church at large, the entire body of Christ. And it's saying because we are, the body of Christ is composed of individuals, the church itself has to constantly reevaluate what we proclaim and go back to make sure that what we say we believe is what we believe and that's showing up appropriately. And it is the body of Christ's responsibility to do that periodically, right? All right, pastors, apostles, bishops, they all have to do that. 
to reevaluate. A great idea was when it comes to Christmas. Uh, last year, I think it was, or two years ago, I did a series about conspiracies and witchcraft, and we came to the conclusion that Christmas itself is extremely pagan. Not a little bit pagan. Not pagan laid on top of a Christian holiday. It started pagan and continues to be pagan. So in essence, Christ was laid on top of the pagan, and, you know, but it does not have any roots in actual Christianity. And so in our leadership meeting, we had two side groups that were, that were split for a vote. Because December is in our next quarter. What should we do in December? As a church, should we celebrate Christmas? Because every year we say, nope, we ain't going to do it. And then we're like, well, we should do something. It's for the kids. It's about family. Because the season gets so impactful. And so the leadership had to decide not their personal stance on Christmas, but as a church, what should the church's stance on Christmas be? Right? Because if drinking wine offends your brother, then you don't drink wine. If eating meat offends your brother, then you don't eat meat. So could it be that Christians celebrating a pagan holiday could actually offend people who say that Christians should not be doing that? I assure you, no non-saved person says, what, y'all don't celebrate Christmas? That's a deal breaker for me. They do not say that. All right. The church leadership had to decide what kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be the kind of church that says, we know the truth, we found the truth, and we're going to walk in it. Even if that means we're going to look weird, like the weird church that don't have Christmas trees up and lights and all this kind of stuff. They ain't doing elephant games and what is it, white elephant? They're not doing, we're going to be that weird church. Or are we going to be the kind of church that we know the truth, but then we try to adjust it and modify it a little bit for our current environment so that we're not so weird looking. So I put it up for a vote for the leadership. And they voted against Christmas. This means is an example of how the body of Christ has to constantly go back to what theology what principles we hold true, because in the midst of just doing church, even the body, the local body, can start to be conformed to sin and corruption. Now, personally, if you want to celebrate Christmas personally, that's fine. We were speaking, what will the church represent? Amen? The church reformed is always reforming. The Christian reformed is always what? Reforming. This year has been about change and, and allowing the spirit of the Lord through his word to change us back to what he originally had in mind at this stage of our lives. Because we can all attest that it got off a little bit as the years progressed. Some of you has been like that your whole, it started off good and then it just went, went open and dupe for a very long time. This wasn't recent. It's been going open and dupe for a while and then you're coming to the realization, what can I do? I'd rather be who God called me to be because trying to be anything less than that or different than that has ran me into the ground. So that's the purpose of our, of our series. Great little summary there. So today, I want us to look at Reformation through love. I knew it. I knew y'all was going to love it. Now, initially, when I saw this earlier in the week, I said, dang it. And I said, dang it, because there's nothing more laborious 
more spiritually and emotionally taxing than having couples not married in church. I tell you, it is the Achilles heel of every local body because they're inevitably going to do it. But it's our responsibility to say, don't do it like that. Now, my reach is only as far as this. Uh, this, is, this is as far as my reach is. I cannot come to your house and be like, put your clothes on. Okay, because that's too much. So my only recourse by the Spirit of God is to plant words in you and seeds of truth that at some point we can pull them up when things get sticky. You know, things get a little hot and bothersome. Right? That's, that's the only recourse. That's the only thing we can do. So when the topic came up, reformation through love, I was like, oh, no. This ain't going to do nothing but make them all hook up faster. That's what they're going to do. Uh-uh, I, know, I know what God said. Mm-mm-mm. They're all going to be thinking about love and relationships. And I was like, oh, help me. But nevertheless, this is the topic that came up just in time last year. Okay. I don't know what you did this week. In some cases, I do know what you did this week. Nevertheless, this topic was placed in line and in order in December of 2022 and that has nothing to do with whatever you got caught doing. A fellow, a fellow person in, in ministry said, well, your church needs money. Why don't you do reformation for giving? I was like, no, I'm going to stick to what's what's in line <laughs> all right the lord ain't stared us wrong yet okay he gonna have to we're gonna keep going with this we as human beings have a longing to love and be loved and that is so much a part of who we are as eschatological creatures the idea of us in the end times has everything to do with us receiving love and giving love. That's the whole shebang. If you look carefully at scripture, you'll find that marriage is so heavily discussed. As a matter of fact, just for fun, the Bible opens with a marriage between Adam and Eve. And then it closes with a marriage of Christ and the church. What if I was to tell you that the struggling that we have being single, married, divorced, bereaved, the struggle we have with pornography, promiscuity, same-sex attraction, or gender dysmorphia, we could actually find that the thing that we're looking for is in Christ. Amen. And that it kind of encompasses the idea that we don't know the purpose of gender. We don't know the purpose of it. We don't know why God made men and why God made women. And this lack of information biblically causes us to not have the type of true longing that we actually desire. Right? So we'll eat garbage to stop from starving. Come on, don't act like you ain't been there. I've been there. Everybody ate a little garbage, you know. The problems that we see in church 
uh, by and large, is the body of Christ is proactive, excuse me, is reactive to all of the changes in sexuality within the world. That we're more reactive versus being proactive. And so we, we have to fight against the problems that we see that are not biblical rather than being very proactive and teaching the truth about why God created men and women. All right? And why they're different. Now, I am not a believer, uh, what is it, if, of uh, uh, men and women are different but equal. That, that's true, but it goes a little too far because when they describe, the parachurch that comes up with this theology, when they describe that men and women are different but equal, the man always have a patriarchal role of power and the woman always has a role of submission. And biblically, that is not true. And any successful married person will tell you it's going to take both submitting yeah. one to another. But all of the young people going to church have been taught for years that a good wife has to learn to submit and that a husband, a good husband, has to learn how to take charge. Yeah. So now we got men trying to force charge <laughs> and women overly submitting to foolishness. Because yeah. not every man is good at taking charge. You might be more of a lover than a fighter, but we're going to tell you to fight. Now you're overfighting in order to compensate for your insecurity. And not every woman is good at submitting. Now you're submitting to things that you don't even have a desire to submit to because you've just got to be picked and because somebody likes you. We need an understanding of God's purpose in gender differences. And so far, all the church has been giving as a, as a major theme is how a woman should learn to be a great wife. And a man has to learn how to be a great husband. And to our knowledge, that means that the only purpose of gender is so that we could be something physically. So when the world says, I'm more than my physical, we go, uh-uh, that ain't right. But we should be saying, we are more than our physical. See how we are reactive rather than proactive? The issue isn't the physical, but the essence of a man and the essence of a woman are uniquely different. People that, neuroscientists can tell you that the brain of a man and a woman is different. You've heard me use this before, but a female has 20 to 40% more connective tissue of the left brain to the right brain, left side of the brain to the right side of the brain than a man. That connective tissue is there to help pass information from sensory and to put it into verbal words. So this is why women can talk so fast about how they feel and what they think because they got 20 to 40% more capacity to do that quickly. Whereas a man might be like, hold on, I feel something. Just give me a minute. Why can't you, can we talk about it later? Why can't you give me a minute? It don't take a minute. You should know right now. Uh, you up to something because it don't take that long. Yeah, he's trying to think is what he's up to. He's trying to think. Men and women have the same emotions. It just takes longer for one, on most cases, to process what they feel in order to communicate it. Right? Challenging. So just how the brain is wired. One of our, our dear uh, transgender members, 
back in the day. Loved her like you would not believe. When she first came to Christ, she asked, Pastor, do I need to start dressing like a man? I said, no. She said, why not? I said, because you already had some surgeries and I don't think you're going to be able to hide. You're not going to be able to hide that with men's clothes. So it's not about what you wear. And there are times that she would run into complications in her life and she'd have me on the phone and she'd be like, so pastor, this is what I did. And I'm like, well, why in the world did you do something like that? And I have to think, because you're a man. Ah, you still have the brain of a, of a male, even though you have the physicality of a lady. Your brain, and any married person could tell you, or any girl raised in a two-parent household <laughs> can tell you that men and women think different. Now, to so all of our girls that were not raised with a father in the home, you have no idea what that's like. You don't know how they think differently. It could still be right, still be true, and still be just. So now you have a fantasy. A fantasy of what your son's going to be like. A fantasy of what your spouse is going to be like. Hello, somebody. You got this because you're still searching for an understanding of a male, whereas the girls raised in a, in a two-parent household has a very clear understanding that men, they sock stink. And they'll wear a t-shirt that's all holy and just shredded. And you just got to fold that little holy t-shirt and just put it. We ain't going to buy a new one. We just going to keep that one, huh, Daddy? That's what we're going to do. And you'll see and hear your dad's perspective on something. And you'll go, that's right, Daddy. And then you hear your mommy's perspective like, that's right, Mommy. What the world? The, truth, the same is true for men raised. With men, you have a more clear understanding of what it means to be a man. You have some sense of acceptance off the bat because someone thinks how you think. And they're not always thinking, you're so stupid. Because that's what the woman will be thinking. <laughs> oh my God, to her son, you are so, you're so stupid. <laughs> Why'd you do that? Why'd you put that like that? That ain't how I showed you. Put that over here. You can't make the bed right for nothing in the world. But when you're raised in a household with another man, you'd be like, oh, little son, that's what you do. Just let her have it. You'd be like, oh, well, daddy said it's fine. You, know, you have a sense that you are not so weird when you're raised in a two-parent household. You understand? So what is it and why did God make them different? Let's find out. Amen? Amen. We can't understand love until we have a look at gender. We have to cover some ideas here of sex and love. When things get a little too detailed, you will hear me change the word sex to baking. And I will use, okay, an analogy, okay, or no, it'll be an allegory, an allegory of baking to sex. And I'm gonna need the adults to pick up what I'm putting down. Because we're going to have to talk about it. But we won't have children's church today. So, if though facto. Okay? So if I say you in there making cakes, you should know what that means. If I say you made a cake by yourself, you know what that means. If I say you watched a baking show, you should know what that means. If I say your cake completely fell, what does that mean? <laughs> ah! 
that's funny. <laughs> what does that mean, Pastor? Kind of stuff you was doing. <laughs> the Lord forgives. Let's move on. <laughs> As the book of Hebrews teaches us how Jesus is the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, and the ultimate king, there is a book that teaches us how Jesus is the ultimate lover. There's a whole book on it. It's a song of Solomon. Y'all, y'all, some of y'all knew that. Now, preachers don't like to preach from this book because it is very explicit. Some of them try to make it an allegory where you can compare things that are not like it to what it's trying to say, and they over-compare, like, this is really this, and they just keep over. It has to be allegorical, okay, because it is so profane, it would seem, so spicy, a little bit of cayenne in that cake. So just as Jesus is the ultimate priest, and we see that in the book of Hebrews, the book of Song of Solomon reveals Christ as the ultimate lover, and this is hard for people to digest. When the Jewish people had their first five books, the Pentateuch, all right, and then as they compiled other books, the first book in their reading was not Genesis. It was the Song of Solomon. I know that they wanted to be able to read through the eyes of a lover redeeming and a lover coming to redeem more than they wanted to hear the story of creation that you have to start with this understanding of intimate love before you can truly see the Genesis act for what it really is. Before you can really see Adam for who he is and Eve for who he is, you have to first start with this, this connection of intimacy. Something that every adult has felt. Maybe not physically, but you felt it, right? So that's why they started that way. In our Bibles, it's smack dab in the middle, all right? But for them, it was always at the very beginning. Let's go to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. When you're there, say amen. amen. The first verse starts us off and says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. You can stop right there. Now you know where the Song of Solomon book is. So you can read it for your homework. But what I want to highlight here, and it's from a lovely author. I think her name was uh, Amy. Now I'll get the, the correct uh, source for you at Bible study. I forgot to write her name down. <clears throat> but one of the things that I love about her writing is she highlighted a couple of things. But the first is that the Song of Solomon and it is entitled that because it says, which is Solomon's. But people really don't know, or, don't know or, not, or are not sure who wrote the book. But they accredit it to Solomon or someone like that. And the reason why it's up for, for dialogue is because the writing is very similar to how women in the Old Testament wrote songs. The song of Miriam, the song of Deborah. And it has the same type of poeticism that they've seen and other songs that were written, right? And so they're saying this has a very feminine touch to it and is indicative of how all the female writers would write songs. So they said, we don't really know. 
okay? Because it could be uh, Solomon. It is, which is Solomon's, because Solomon's name is peace. So this is the Song of Songs, which is peace. And so they're still in the upper air. And then the, it, is, it, is, it is written in first person for the majority of the book. And the first person is female. So the, the author speaks predominantly from a female perspective, which is very hard for any man, Old Testament or present day, to do. Okay, so for now, Song of Solomon is intense. It's all about love and making cakes, baking cakes and waiting to bake cake, and I can't wait to bake the cake, and I'm thinking about baking the cake, and my mouth is watering just thinking about baking the cake, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And I like icing, and I like chocolate chips, and what about strawberries, and maybe we could make a pistachio. And it just, I mean, it's a lot of cake talk. Now, but first and foremost, this is a song. You need to take that in for a second. It's not a dictate on how to be married. It's not a teaching specifically just for understanding the Savior. It is a song. So when you read it, it should make you feel the way songs make you feel. And any songwriter knows that a good song is not flat but it has multiple layers. Do you understand? Not just musically, but lyrically, a good song could apply in so many different ways so that more audiences get to enjoy the same song but have a different feeling and experience. The Song of Solomon is supposed to be read like a song. An intimate song and conversation being sung from one woman to her lover. And this conversation, as you'll see, as you read on, gets, it gets spicy, it gets playful, it gets serious, it gets passionate, it gets frustrated. It's, it's powerful, right? Much of our contemporary commentary, they don't like how the Song of Solomon is so physical. And so they try to say it's not physical. It's the target audience is, is unmarried and it's specifically the single young people and it tells women how to behave and you know, it tells the, the women to take a warm shower when they're married and a, and a cool shower when they're not married and it tells the men how to take a cool shower. And so they use it just as a way to kind of teach singles how to live and what to expect and married people how to live, but it's a song first and foremost. And so supposed to have a wonderful feeling that it is saying something in words that you've always felt but could not express. I'll use myself as an example. One day I was, I was riding in the car, and if you know me, I love the golf primarily because um, I love the scenery. I love beautiful scenery. I am enthralled with it. I will walk down a golf course with Jewel, and I say, ooh, look at that. Ooh, look at that. Ooh, look at that. And she'd be like, how did you notice that? I'm like, you don't see these things? No, I'm just walking straight. Like, what? And one day I was driving in my car and being a person that loves beautiful landscape and scenery, I saw this big, huge uh, dogwood in blossom, you know, when they're big and white and fluffy and the wind in the spring, early spring was just blowing right through it. And I just looked at it and I said, I wish I could be in that tree. 
just like in it with all the petals just surrounding me. Just always wanted to sit in there and be like, mm 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 mm. <laughs> I couldn't explain other than how I'm telling you what this felt like. It was just something that was so beautiful that I just wanted to be in it. And I wanted to be all around me. I wanted to eat it, drink it. Mm, dogwood, it's nice, you know? I, couldn't just, I just wanted to be totally consumed in something so beautiful. And so when I read the Song of Solomon, it took that experience for me to understand the type of intimacy that the Song of Solomon is trying to say as Christ as a lover when he says, I be in you and you be in We're so intertwined, we can't tell each other apart. You're so, and that you should have a desire to dive into the beauty of who Jesus is. His majesty, like, ooh, look at this. It's so soft, it's so nice. I don't know, maybe it's smooth, I don't know, okay? But it took that. Can you think of anything that you thought was so lovely, so beautiful, that's not a person? <laughs> that you just said to yourself, I wish I could sit in the midst of that. And I could stay there all day. Maybe it's a song, maybe it's a painting, maybe it's nature, maybe it's freshly folded sheets or a crisp stack of towels, nice and, never mind, all right. <laughs> the Song of Solomon is designed to do that. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. So when we, when we try to remove, as you're going there, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5 and 6, when we try to remove sexual intimacy from an understanding of humans and Christians, we miss what it means to be saved. If the Song of Solomon is some book that you should never touch, something that you got to shy away from, you know, in premarital counseling, I have to talk to Christians about you're going to have to stop feeling like sex is shameful. And even though you're married, some Christians are so legit about their salvation that they have a hard time making sure that sex is no longer sinful in, in themselves. I know some of y'all are not going to have that problem. But nevertheless, <laughs> there are those who have abstained for the fathers too, too much so that they can't get out of the idea that it's shameful or dirty. Right? And trying to teach married couples that you're going to need, and this is tricky, to invite Christ into your bedroom. They'd be like, Pastor, we plan on doing some stuff in that bedroom that uh, I don't think the Lord should bear witness to. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The two commandments to which all great commandments, the rest of the commandments hang on, is love God and love your neighbor. Yeah. And if you could do those two things, Jesus says, then you completely will fulfill every law that is written without a problem. If you learn to love God and love your neighbor. So the idea that we can separate intimacy and cake baking from our truest understanding of salvation and gender is not possible. And by doing so, we weaken the understanding of our salvation. Amen? Amen. As, we, as I stated earlier, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding, right? 
In the creation account, if you go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24. In the creation account, we read of the man bonding with his wife and becoming one flesh. At the end of Revelations, we are given a vision of the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, when she has finally met with her husband, the Christ. So the idea of marriage beginning and ending this story, the idea of all of our salvation and rescue hinges on an intimacy and love. This is why sexual abuse is so damaging to the identity of any human being, and it tampers with the identity of God that you can perceive. I can't, I can't, I don't know what I said. I can't say it again. It tempers, it, it, it tampers with the identity of who you are. It messes with how you can understand what it means to be human, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a male, how that resembles Christ or God and the Father. It tempers with understanding intimacy. It, it messes with how you live as a human being. All right, because when he created them, he created them male and female. Which specifies that there's something about the gender that is unique in each gender, the male or the female, that is so unique in God's creation that he's using both of them to show and display something extremely powerful that exists within him. Everybody say amen. Some of you need to repeat after, I am not my past. Not my, past. My, past is not my past is not here. This is a day of healing, day of healing. And, restoration. and restoration. Now take a deep breath. All right, you guys all right? Amen. I know it's tough, all right? But we're not going to go back there. We're going to start here in newness and learn what's, what's going to happen going forward, okay? This is not to dwell on that. This is to stay right here in this now and then look going forward, all right? You've repented for that. If, that was, if you had any wrongdoing, God healed that. You're, you're, not, you're not that child anymore. We're moving forward. Do you understand? So don't me find you going back. I can tell when you go back because you look like this. Stand here and go forward. Do you understand? All right. I know it's hard, but do it. Try, 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 try. Isaiah. Hosea, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all speak of marriage between God and his people. The first miracle Jesus ever performed was that of what? A wedding. John the Baptist called himself the bridegroom. And Paul, who wrote of Christ's love for his bride, the church, saying that it is the great mystery to which our own marriages point to. Marriage is, an, is all over the Bible. It's just, it dominates and how God wants you to understand him and you. It's, it's dominating. Are you feeling me on this? Are you seeing where this is going? Yeah. All right, good. Richard White Kettle, he wrote a book, and he developed a book that, reve that revealed and showed how the womb and the wellspring is uh, an allegory for the woman's body in its structure and function. 
and biblically it corresponds to the order of Levitical sacred space. This is why we see uh, all those weird purity laws associated with women when they have to clean their oven. And the postpartum cleaning of the oven. Okay. And Leviticus talks in great detail about the woman's oven. Do you understand? And when it's clean and when it's not clean. And there's always rules about it for a period of time that you can touch and there's a period of time that you cannot touch. Her womb represents the fullness of life, the inner sanctum of the divine realm. So you see ideas of of it overflowing, the oven overflowing. Overflows with unbounded water where it is inhabitable for life and a threat to sanctum, rendering her ceremonially impure for a set amount of time. Do you, do I need to, are you with me when we do it again? I might have lost some people, okay. So Leviticus says that when a woman is at that time of the month, ah, that's safe, okay, all right, that there are rules and laws, but it shows that within her womb as representing the fullness of life is what he's doing a study on, that the womb represents a well and the fullness of life, that that space is sacred. And it's sacred because of what it represents. And then there's a time when it is overflowing with water and cleansing that you're not supposed to touch it. Yeah. Right? And that anything that goes in the oven at that time cannot live. It is uninhabitable. Right? And so what he begins to show is there is a constant pattern within the woman as a female with an oven, a womb. Okay? that reveals creation, destruction, and recreation. And the woman represents that over and over and over. Life, destruction, and new life. That the female embodies that. And it is uniquely different in what the male embodies a source of great fertility, of renewal, consistently fruitful, over and over and over again. Whereas a woman has a certain amount of eggs, men do not have a certain amount of, why can I say eggs and can't say the other word? That's so weird, but you know the other thing. <laughs> they, they, don't, they, they can be unlimited in that. Yeah. Like, oh, five shots, that's all I got. You know, no, that's not, that's, not, that's not them, okay? We have a very specific amount of eggs. In this homology, one author quoted, we see another literary pattern from scripture of creation, destruction, and recreation, where unbounded water is confined uh, and then released. We see it in Genesis with the flood. Water above, released, whoosh, destroys the entire earth, right? And then a seed beginning new life. That seed encased in an ark. It's the same story over and over and over. And if we don't understand how we play a role in this, being not just physical entities of God, but a soul, a brain, a mind, and emotions that is uniquely different for males and females, that that is, that is an intricate part of what he's trying to do. Because he's about love. Because he is love. 
No, you need to hear me. God is about love. And when we don't understand our physical bodies and our hearts and minds, we can mess up with what he wanted us to be very good at, and that's making love. We were designed to be very good at that, to be fruitful and what? Amen? Amen. Okay. There are also other literary patterns that we see in the book of Genesis chapter 2. And we see this even in chapter 1. There's, there's another pattern between male and female. Again, in Genesis chapter 1, you'll see day and night. Day was separated from night, right? And then the skies were filled with the sun and the moon for illumination. Do you remember that? He separated day from night, then he made stars, suns, and moons, all right? The sky was separated from the sea and then filled with sea creatures and flying creatures. The land is separated from the sea and filled with vegetation, animals, and man. In the creation account, had we read the Song of Solomon first, we would understand why there is a division, hello somebody, a separation, and then a fruitfulness. Y'all don't want to help me today. Because Adam had to be cut as a sacrifice, and Eve was separated from his rib, and the two of them has created filling, or go, go and fill the earth to be fruitful and multiply. This pattern is seen over and over and over again. So when two, a man and a woman get together in, in, in under God and in marriage and, and love, they represent all of creation what God loves and how he loves it, what it says, right? I love the example about the sea and the land because it's, it's the clearest example I have for when Christ says, if I be in you and you be in me. Because when it comes to the sea and the land, there's land under the sea. Yeah. And there is sea on the land. And I just be like, my, my, my. Could me and the Lord be just like that? With oceans, racing against the land waves crashing can we can we be like that where it's very hard to see where the water starts in the land y'all don't want to help me today i said could i just be like that with the father this pattern sets up the entire idea of creation the original levitical audience who this book was written to levites and priests old israel they know very well the cultic necessities of sacrifice and cleansing in order to approach God. So when they read this, Song of Solomon in Genesis, they read it understanding and saw in it the creation of woman as the fullness of life. She was the liturgical partner with Adam. The word liturgical means the symbolism of something sacred and divine. She was the partner right? To display the divine. So the two of them together displayed on earth God's divinity. And the woman represents the fullness of life. As you see, uh, she came after Adam and the word of God begins to show that she is the glory of man. A picture of what we are all called to be. Habitation of life. Eve came as the fullness and the glory of man. 
you remember, Adam said, there's none comparable to me. You want me to be fruitful and multiply? Who am I going to be fruitful and multiply with? I'm not like the, the, the sheep. I'm not like the goat. I'm not like the giraffe. I'm not like the, who am I supposed to be with? And so God puts him to sleep, cuts him open, takes a rib, and uses that rib and makes Eve. And now she, a part of him, is a complete representation of life. Like he can look at her and go, now that is your glory. To a husband. And real husbands that love their wives will tell you, that's my glory. That's the best thing I ever had right there. That's, that was the thing that I got. That's, that did it all right there. I saw this in my parents. Right? That's, that's it right there. And mommy just be beaming. I am the best thing he ever had in his life. <laughs> and you could see a man's pride in having a woman, a bride, someone that, sh- that reveals all of his fruitfulness, that shows life. Because a wife does that. She shows you life. She shows you why you're working, why you're getting that check, why you're taking vacations, why you're cleaning the house, why you're putting on deodorant. She shows you life. And most men have a hard time living without one. They be like, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know why I'm here. She resembles the, look what I have found, a man could say. I have found a wife. She will lay down her life to continue to make more of me. That's how much she adores me. She's my glory. I wanted her. I chased her. I got her. She represents life to me. So like a king would wear a crown, a husband would display his wife. Look at my jewel thing right there. Look at her. She all sparkly. Because men love to brag to other men about their women. You know, I came home, man. She already had the dinner made, you know. You know, she was telling me I was fine. You know, I was like, it's all right, you know. What you eating over there? Oh, my wife ain't no. She made this little for me, you know, a little sandwich, little, little. That's a big sandwich. Yeah, you know, she put the roast beef on there, got the little jus on the sides. You know how I like it. <laughs> men love to brag to other men about their wives when they're good. When they're good. I wonder how many conversations as a girlfriend you've had of stress because you're not the one. But you keep trying to be the one. So all he could talk about is how you're stressing him out. How she don't even do this. I asked her to do that. She can't even do this. I don't even know why she blah, 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 blah. Eve is the glory of Adam. And together they represent the divinity of who God is. What he's about. He, God is love. When you see a husband and wife come together, boom, love. And when God is there, it's nothing but fruitfulness, fruitfulness, fruitfulness. You know, husband and wife team, when they're, ordained by God as a family they elevate I've seen it my parents stayed together till the end and as a family they elevated and gave me a very good start to go even further when you're single and raising a child whether you're a man or a woman it is extremely difficult to get ahead right because the weight of it is on you but something is not heavy when we all are lifting. And some of us don't want to work out how we could be a better assistance 
to our baby mamas and baby daddies. We don't want to work it out. We don't want to discuss it. We'd rather keep the arts, the problems. You stay you. I'll be me. Forget you. These are the kids. And the whole time, somebody you picked, for the most part, you are now carrying his life. And you don't want to work out how we're going to carry this. And this is not to say that you didn't try. There are some mothers and fathers that tried. Told their baby mama, be in your child's life. Told their baby daddy, be in your child's life. And it didn't work. And there are some that just didn't really try unless they needed something. That parent was not given a true opportunity to co-parent. Wasn't even given an opportunity to do so. Because you preferred the check. You preferred the, preferred the financial stability. All right, let's move on. Y'all all right? I can't, I can't make the Bible say what it don't say. And there's a specific nature to men and women, and it does show uh, the divineness of their progeny, who, what they reproduce, what they make. It's glorious to the Father. It's not his fault that you picked a knucklehead or a chickenhead. It was that baby is still glorious to him. Yeah. Women get pregnant in our church, and they say, Pastor, uh, it's a terrible thing. I'm like, no, it ain't. I'm so excited. They be like, what? But I ain't married. I don't care. <laughs> I don't even care. Why you don't care? Because you got a baby. Do you know what that means? That means the Lord saw fit to even allow you in the midst of sin to glorify him. You got the best blessing you could ever have. He said, even though you were wrong for doing it, I want to use you to glorify my name. I'll be so excited. They don't be that excited. I can't wait for that baby to get here. Right? Trying to show them, lift your head. The fact that you have the child, God has already removed the shame. That's why, that's why the scriptures say, by childbirth, the woman is saved. The fact that you got the baby already says he's trying to lift the shame. And here we go trying to condemn people. And God already showed you, no, it's of me. Chill out. Relax. He proved it. No, I'm still with her. I was still in the midst. I can still use her. I can still use him. I'm still in their lives. I'm still in their family's lives. It ain't over. It ain't over. He ordains it. He takes a mess and makes new life from it. That sounds like him. Because anybody could take something perfect and make something else perfect. Do you take a household that is in disarray? And God ordains life to come from those two individuals. And they can barely stand to look at each other now. So he said, I'm going to lift the shame. Now you lift the shame off of each other. I'm going to forgive you. Now you forgive one another. Right? I'm going to support you. So now you support what? One another. Ideally. Amen? 
When it comes to matrimony and marriage, there's a common literary pattern that can be seen in betrothal. And, and somebody proposing to you, okay? All right? All right? There's a pattern in, in literary concepts about somebody, a man saying, will you marry me? And it's found countless times in scripture. First, you need to recognize how many women, okay, put it this way. Nowadays, how can a woman or a man meet each other? Online dating, right? At school, at church, at the grocery store, at Home Depot, okay, Home Depot crew, all right? At the gym, hello. On the golf course, hello. And at the well, back in the day, all the good women could be found at the well. Biblically, she symbolizes a well, right? And all the good women could be found at the well. This was a common practice. It was like a good woman is found in the grocery store. She's found at the dry cleaners. She's found on the cleaning aisle, number six. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, she, she bought something right there. She found taking notes in school. She found at a university. She found practicing her instrument. Oh, that's a good one right there. That's a good one. She found in the gym, you know, at church. Where a man goes, now, if I want that kind of woman, where would I go? The well. All the good women in history in the Bible have been found at the well. I wrote down some examples. I hope I can find you. Rebecca, Rachel, and Zipporah. All of them. All the good women that are mentioned in the Bible were found at the well. There's a literary pattern here. So when Genesis, when Song of Solomon and Genesis were written, and the Levitical notes, that they had an understanding of people being engaged and getting married, getting hooked up at the well. This was a common thing. We did not know it. They knew it. So in order to interpret scripture, we first have to see what it meant to the people to which it was written to. All right. So the pattern is key. Robert Alter, he kind of connects the dots for us. In the midst of all these well hookups, <laughs> there's a traditional pattern that they, that they had. He suggested that a... Uh, when a biblical narrator came to the moment of the hero's betrothal, Isaac needs a wife. Abraham needs a wife. That both he and his audience were very aware that the scene had to unfold in particular circumstances according to a very fixed order. If some of those circumstances were altered or suppressed, or if the scene actually was omitted, that communicated something to the audience as clearly as, I don't know, they fade to black and you never even saw the couple kiss. Do you understand? Yeah. We, we, there's, thing, there's certain things like when um, playwrights and TV writers, when they write scripts in, in rom-coms, there's a common practice and it's done in every rom-com. Everyone, you can find it. That practice is the meet cute. In every rom-com, it's a point in the movie where the man meets the girl in a clumsy, haphazard kind of way. It's called a meet-cute, right? 
Because nobody wants to see my friend says your friend is a friend and you can come date my friend. No, no, no. We want to see my friend has a friend when you come and then y'all run each other in the museum. Oh my God, I dropped my purse. And there's a twinkle when your eyes meet. This is a common practice in all romantic comedies. So we know when we see their, her pick up her purse and they go, we already know they're a couple. They about to be a couple. That's it. That's the couple right there. If I ever is in doubt, that's the one. And if it does not do that, if we don't see that they play soft music in the background and a longing look between the two, then we be like, mm -mm. You know, when the man from the bar says, let me buy you a drink. And she's like, thanks. And next, you know, they're in the hotel. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This ain't the right one. Mm -mm, she wrong. This ain't the one. He, this is not the one. They didn't even have that spark. But what I'm trying to say <clears throat> is that uh, Robert Alter's explanation says that the Bible, and when it comes to narrations of betrothal, has the same type of pattern that the people in the Bible day would expect. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Here's the pattern. The betrothal <clears throat> type scene will always have the future bridegroom <clears throat> or his sur surrogate having journeyed to a foreign land, always, yep. Number two, he always encounters a girl, invariably named Nahara, is always the name given to that woman, unless she's the daughter of something. Number three, someone, either the man or the girl, draws water from the well. And afterward, the girl or girls, number four, rushes back to the home to tell people right and number five he asks to marry sometimes in the most instances after a major meal and every good girl that was found at the well their betrothal had this similarity a man from a distant land came or a man's surrogate go find a, a wife for my husband for my son goes to the well, there's a woman, sir, let me get that water for you, ma'am, let me get that water for you, and then she says, oh, oh, I want to, oh, ooh, twinkle in the eye, oh, <laughs> right, and then she says, can you stay, can you come to our house, and she runs and tells her family, I think I met somebody, and the dad comes up, you want to come to dinner, and he's like, yeah, I'll come to dinner, and they go to dinner, and they eat, and he says, will you marry me, he makes his intention at the well, and then he truly proposes somewhere after a major meal. This is the same pattern, yeah. all right? Okay. Let's go to Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. People know that the Bible and the history of Israel is all about seeds and Israel as a seed, as the Jesus as the firstborn of many brethren. It's always about people and seeds and people being making people and people making people on the land. And the woman always represents the well or the ground of that land. Yeah. All right? So in an, in an analogous type of way, God would always say, be careful, Israelites, you can't marry somebody that's not Israelite because we want to keep... Keep this thing going, all right? To a Jew, marriage was extremely sacred initially. It was very sacred. 
in the beginning, which is what we're going to see, they knew that. And as time progressed, they did not know that. <laughs> it got so bad that Moses had to do something, and that was to write decrees of divorce. Let's read that in chapter 24, verse 1. When you're there, say amen. amen. When a man takes a wife, don't get tired on me now. I'm just getting to the good stuff. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of her house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. What? So you get married. Y'all get a divorce. If the wife remarries and he gives her a divorce, then the first husband say, come back with me. No. You can't do that. If the second husband dies, the first husband says, come back. You can't do that. This was a law around the time that Moses started giving out divorce certificates because people had to figure out, now that we can get divorced, I ain't got to stay married to you. It was all kinds of stuff going on. Divorce you, sleep with that one, come back and remarry you because the idea... That if your first husband can now take you, right, was that he could have took you from the first start of the indecency. Okay, women, let's, the men got it. The women, let's catch up. Okay, let's catch up. Let's catch up. Women, men was like, y'all. Okay, women was like, what? What? Every woman's face was like, huh? what are they clapping about? <laughs> Come on, 20, 40%. All right. So women, let's break it down for us. Okay. All right. So if you, if, if you get married and then your husband says, uh -uh, I think you've been cheating on me and I'm divorcing you, right? And so you say, I wasn't or I was, doesn't even matter, okay? Doesn't even matter, yeah. but you're divorced. So now you go marry somebody else. And now you, this is your second husband. It's going great. He says, I want a divorce or he dies, right? Now, at that point, your first husband cannot come back and say, well, you want to be with me? Let's, make, let's do it again. Let's get married again. Because the idea here is he should have never let you leave. If you're able to handle me sleeping with other men, and I have, and you still want me, then at the thought of me being indecent at the beginning, you should have still wanted me there. Hello? You could have worked that out. We could have stayed together and worked that out. Why now, after you done gave me a divorce and somebody else wanted me, now you want me to come back? You could have worked this out from the beginning. And women, y'all need to hear this. Because you're always trying to resurrect old marriages and old relationships. And that might be fine if you had no other boyfriends or husbands in between. That probably is not the case. Everybody all right? Because quiet is kept, marriages can endure a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
so I get a lot of fantasies about marriage from singles. And you really think if you pick the right one, that half the problems you've seen in other marriages, you won't have. And we just sit there and go, <laughs> <laughs> and they always start off young. Yep, this is the best one. I ain't going to have that problem like my mom and daddy did. Nope, I ain't going to have that. And you trying to not be your mama, you trying to not be your daddy, and it's going to be a hot mess. Because you cannot intimately love someone when you're trying not to be someone else. Because the more you try not to be someone else, you cannot be yourself. Y'all don't want to help me. If you're trying to outlive somebody else's life, then you cannot live your life. If you're trying to out not be your daddy and not be your mama, then you're still not going to be you. So the man said, I'm not going to be like my daddy was. So that's his focus. He has now identified himself as not like my daddy and never had an opportunity to figure out who he was. He think he got some, well, this, this is a great idea. I'm going to learn not to be like my dad. You can't. Some things are just intrinsic. But there are unique things that God gave just for you. And that's the part you need to figure out. That's the part you need to focus on. That's the part that's going to be different. And you can't make it different. It shows up as you know yourself. It shows up as you know you. Everyone, I'm not going to be like my mama. My mama was always loud. I'm going to be real submissive. No, you ain't. You're going to keep fighting against that part of you. Feel like you need to say something, and you shouldn't say something. I need to say, because I'm not going to be divorced like my mama. And see, now, you, you understand? You never got an opportunity to really be you because you're so busy trying not to be what you saw displayed. And in truth, as a pastor, I could tell you, you end up being more like them than you ever would have thought about. Because what you think about and what you say is what you become. So if you only think about how not to be like them, then what are you going to be? Just like them. Woo! Take a deep breath. Gender. Sex, marriage. Singleness. We got it all screwed up, don't we? Don't we? Just a little bit. A little bit. A lot of it? Mm-hmm. So now you were at, you were at Deuteronomy. Uh-huh. Now go to Matthew chapter nineteen. Matthew chapter nineteen, verse three. When you're there, say Amen. I'll keep talking till you get there. You know, so <laughs> in the beginning they didn't want they weren't allowed to divorce. They didn't need to divorce, and then people just start getting as we're going to read so hard hearted that Moses had to write divorce papers. That's why Deuteronomy 24 is saying the only reason your marriage couldn't work was because you hardened your heart. Because every real couple that's married knows it takes a lot of re-softening over and over and over. I ain't fooling up with him. I ain't fooling up with her. I am done with him. I am done with her. I'm going to leave. Slam this door. Boom. I'm out. Mm. Let me in. <laughs> Why you change the locks? Let me in my house. And every successful couple, married couple, does a lot of hardening, softening, hardening, softening, over and over and over, where you just know this is it. I am done with you. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. And he's like, well, 
I mean, everybody got problems. Everybody got issues. And so you start softening your heart towards one another. That's what make marriages successful. Not the lack of your mistakes. Not the more you provide. Hello? That's what makes them successful. Each person committing under God to display his glory of life. Like, no, I'm committed to you, but I'm, the, the thing here is we are both committed to showing what he looks like. But I can't stand you. I can't stand you either. Now, we're going to have to make up because it's a team. We're displaying him. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. And, like, mm. and your homeboys be like, what happened, dog? Did you tell her? Did you run? And yeah, you know, you know, man, I told her, you know, I told her, uh, you know, I told her, you know, I told her something like that, you know. Then she called, hey, baby. Oh, oh, don't you told her. You know, everybody, it's a whole drama because everybody recognizes that y'all don't made up. Yeah. Oh, you a punk. Oh, you whipped. Now, they're going to say that to the men because secretly they wish they had somebody that they can soften their hearts towards and a reason for somebody to say, stop being angry and a reason to say, stop being mad and a reason to say, stop being discouraged. They need a reason. And you got one, baby. Hello? And to ladies, you ain't no different. I'm done with you. I can't stand this. I can find somebody better. You know, I'll take this. I got my own money. I can do my own thing. I'm leaving. Well, what you doing? <laughs> Did you take your medicine? Because you know you be forgetting. I'm not trying to get back with you, but I'm trying to make sure that you all right. Ooh, that's a softening happening. And then you get around your lady friends. Girl, you told her right. Well, girl. I mean, I told him he ain't going to be doing that to me no more. But what you doing? Hey, baby. Hey. We all guilty of this. <laughs> so divorce certificates were established because as mankind got increasingly more sinful, our hearts got more hardened. You say stuff like, I don't have to take this. I don't need this in my life. I can do bad all by myself. That's what you say. That's, that's what you say. And you don't even recognize that the purpose of the marriage was so that you both together might glorify God in your unison. So no, you can't do better. And no, you can't. You understand what I'm saying? You, you can't do better by yourself because together you already are. You together now. To divorce because of a hardened heart is not to do better. It's to do worse. That's why so many scriptures in the New Testament talk about people that want to get divorced and be like, don't remarry. What? It's confusing. Like, how come I can't get remarried? Because you didn't understand when you got into the marriage that it was supposed to be a reflection of who God is. Okay, let me break it down. Let's say you go get baptized and you come out being a Christian. Oh, you go to all your friends. I don't club no more. I don't do that stuff no more. And then you get tired of church. Huh? Then you get tired of trying to live right. I ain't, I ain't doing this. I was better off over there. Oh, you was better off in sin? I was better off because I could get my hustle on. I can at least make some money. I can at least do this. I, I'm, I was better off not going to church all the time. Oh. And so now you go out there in them streets. And your same friends that were there when you betrothed the father have now seen you with a hardened heart leave church 
hello, as his bride, left it all together. And you think that because you left church that somehow you're still going to be able to glorify God. That don't make no sense. We already know if you left church, you left God, collectively speaking, you know, that you're not going to be able to glorify God. Okay, so a husband and wife, when they get married, they're supposed to glorify God through sickness and health, right? Through death do us part, right? So we can't harden our hearts towards one another because we have a mission to glorify God. And if we separate, then we destroy the idea of what he thought marriage should represent. So no, you can't do better by yourself. If you wanna be better, soften your heart. Go get therapy, go get counseling. This is also why it's so important to pick a Christian. <sighs> Can you imagine trying to do this with somebody unsaved? You can't even call on the father. I ain't going to that church. You and all that. You always at the church. I ain't doing that all the time. I done messed up. Yes, you did. Real bad. Are you now at Matthew? Matthew 19, verses 3. Let's look at this. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Ooh. He, being Jesus, answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Stop right there. I want you to recognize that when the Pharisees are trying to ask about divorce, Jesus makes it very plain about male and female. Before you can even understand marriage and divorce, you have to first recognize that God made you male and female. Like you have to know that and what that represents and the coming together of the two and how that is there. So whatever God puts asunder, right? No man can separate. So uh, when you go get married at church, it used to be the only pastors could marry you. Now anybody can marry you, you understand? So you got married by a, a pastor, you know. They're, they're saying that God has put this together. They're ordaining that God has put this together. You guys are called as a couple to glorify God. That's what marriage is. And you both, you marriage come and say, yep, we are. We're going to glorify God. Mm. We, we shouldn't expect divorce here. The church should have the highest non-divorce rate and the lowest divorce rate. But the church members' hearts are equally as hardened as the secular when it comes to relationships. So when you be asking me, Pastor, can I date? No. I be thinking, what if a baby come from that? Your heart is so hardened. It's so hardened. That's not even good. We're going to have a scandal on our hands. We really are. That's going to be an embarrassment. Not always. Sometimes it could work, but it's going to be tough. That's why I don't marry certain couples. If you can't stop having sex and you're in my premarital counseling, I'm not marrying you and have turned away couples. No, then they call their uncles on me. I don't care. My uncle a pastor. And <laughs> get him to marry you. 
I ain't marrying them. Because you said what they said, then I ain't going to do it. Nobody wants to marry you. Nobody wants their name on that certificate. Nobody wants, no pastor wants to be able to say, I know that God has put this together. No, I don't. I don't know it. I'm lying to the father so y'all can have sex. No. How about you learn to stop having sex? Because the truest form of knowing somebody's love is their self what? Sacrifice. So if you still can't sacrifice self, you're not fit to glorify God in a married state. You need to glorify him in another way. Hello? Hello? Ooh, y'all, bro, y'all is so tense. And, and what's, who's really tense is the younger ones. The 30s and ups, y'all ain't that tense. The young ones are like, because what, what I'm doing is I'm just stomping on all their little hormones. And they're like, I wish you would have never told me this. What am I do now? I'm going to hear this over and over in my head. That the woman is a sacred space. That her womb is called by the father like a sacred land, like holy ground. Right? This is the Song of Songs. The Song, the song of Solomon is a song of songs. It says, out of all the songs that you could sing, this is the best song that you should sing. And it's a song of love and intimacy where God's name is not even mentioned. Well, you have to recognize that the woman's womb, as the glory of the husband, is sacred. Like, take off your shoes. Don't come tracking dirt in this holy place. I told one young man, I said, young man, why for are you going to go after somebody that got nothing but footprints in her holy land? He said, so do I. What, 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 what? No, no. Everybody need to be healed. Everybody need to be healed. Everybody need to be redeemed. You need to be made new. No to all of this. Right? Because it's nothing but sick people making more sick people. Playing with fire. We don't know what we're about to get. Diseases, children, more responsibilities. Ugh. More shame, guilt, crying out, oh, Lord, forgive me. Ugh, it. Ugh, just constant, constant, constant. Nobody want that. Hello? So every man has to look at a woman as a sacred space. That she is designed by God, if she marries, to glorify that man through both of them showing life together in unison. Where they were separate. Now they come together as one flesh. They got one body. This means they do the same stuff. One body. They move in the same way. Your body is my body. My body is your body. You want some cake? I'll give you some cake. I don't want no cake. Well, can you give me some cake tomorrow? I'll give you some cake tomorrow. See, that's the cause we share in bodies. Right? Your body belongs to him, according to the scripture, and his body belongs to you as a wife. All right. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to get even tougher. <laughs> because the hardest part for men, from what I gather, and I've never been a man, <laughs> got to make that plain these days. From what I gather, one of the hardest parts about being a man, especially a young man, 
is that every time you look at a woman, you're thinking about sex for the most part. That is, a, and I've had, I've, I've counseled men. You do not have to look like, not me, shut up, all right? This is universal, okay? You're not gonna get away from this, all right? That when you look at a woman, you think sex. You think pleasure. Now this comes from a deep-rooted area of nurturing and love, but ultimately it's flesh. What does that look like? What does that feel like? I wanna taste some cake, just a whole shebang. This is the hardest part. And men cannot grow in the Father or in the Spirit until they begin to recognize that every woman is not just sex. One of the best things that happens to a man is that he has a daughter. Because then he go, me looking at my daughter like that. I know you're giving her the look that I get. you looking at my daughter with the look that I give other girls when I was in your age. I know what kind of look you can see next. Facts! My dad would shoot these men. I mean, I'm like, he didn't want to go out on another date. Daddy was like, in the background, you don't want to take me out again? Mm-mm, I don't want to take you out no more. I mean, nobody wants to date me again. I don't know why, baby. <laughs> Whole time, daddy over there. Kids, you think my dad was a sumo wrestler. Your dad's going to mess us up. Boom. I was like, this ain't, no, my dad's really nice. <laughs> but when a man, a husband, has a daughter, this is his opportunity to start seeing women as something different. When they, especially when they have to raise the girl. When they're not raising her, it don't really click. But when they raise her, Spend a lot of time with her. They'd be like, oh, you got thoughts. Oh, you be thinking things. You be feeling things. Oh, did that little boy make you cry? And all the dad can say, I wonder how many girls I made cry. Dad coming, I was a jerk. You know, and they're just going over what they did to other girls in their head, and that promotes maturity in that man. Make sense? Till then, man got to figure out, if I don't have a daughter, how am I going to stop? looking at girls like meat or cake. Because sometimes you do it, you don't even mean to do it. Amen. And the boys don't want to amend this, but ladies, it's an amen. Okay? Don't be shy. All right? Okay. So now you got to figure out a way in order for me to, to marry properly, to reproduce properly, and to give God glory, a man has to figure out how now do I look at women. So I'm trying to give you the phrase, in case you don't have daughters, you haven't raised a daughter, and it is, they are a sacred space. In the, holy, in, in the temple of God, they are the holies of holy, where only the high priest, the one chosen, can enter. He's the only one that can pass through the veil. Y'all don't want to help me here because he has been consummated by God, cleansed, washed, and appointed to go right through that veil and into the holies of holies. The entire Bible is laid out just like that, where the man, Adam, is a high priest. A high priest in Genesis. How would Genesis would have looked if Adam, as the high priest, would have kicked Satan out for even talking to Eve? Yeah, Eve ate it and gave it, but Adam should have known. You are the high priest. Kick out this unclean thing. The story would have went completely different. Eve said, we're not even supposed to touch it. She understood law. Eve became the glorious fulfillment of what God had in mind for creation. And when God said, don't eat it, Eve knew instinctively, don't eat it, don't even touch it. And now the rest of scripture has for for unholy things, don't eat it, don't touch it. 
Don't eat it. Don't touch it. She knew that from the beginning as a complete fullness of what God had in mind when he created man. Similar to what God had in mind when he sent his son, that we would be the completeness, the bride with the bridegroom at the end, the fullness of it. Well, they were separate. Then they came together and were filled. And they made stuff. Do you understand? All right, where would I tell you to go? Did you go there? How are you right there? Matthew 19, verse 3. All right, then verse 7. So uh, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give us a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of hardness, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the what? Beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Adam has to regain, through Christ, his position, right, of not hardening his heart. The man has to say, baby, we're going to work through this. Let me tell you something in terms of men and women. A strong man is not necessarily how hard you hit, how many guns you got, how much money you make. A strong man, I, I've seen it in my parents and I've seen it in my own relationships, is one that says, when I say, we're done, they say, I'm not letting you go. We're not done. You ain't going nowhere. We in it together, you and me. Daddy would tell my mama, I ain't going nowhere. You ain't going nowhere. We is, it is us. My daddy never stayed one day away from home. Never. He was always home when it was time to be home. No matter how angry they were, they were right there in the same household. So imagine my surprise when I date somebody and he like, I'm leaving, he walk out the door. Walk out the door. Where you going? This is home. What oh, I can't marry you. You don't even have an understanding that you're not supposed to leave. <laughs> you're not strong enough when I am weak emotionally and frustrated and tired and I don't know what to do and I can't seem to make this work. We need the strength to say, I got you and we ain't going nowhere. What you believe about us is going to be true. And secretly, that's all a woman wants. Can you tell me that what I hope for about us, you two can make it happen with me? Because do you want the same thing? And that's all we're really saying. Do you, I don't know if you want the same thing I want. And the strength of a man is seen because he knows God spoke. He knows God put you guys together. He knows what he prayed for. And even when you get unsure, he says, we're going to make it, baby. So, of course, men's hearts have hardened. Women's hearts have hardened. But that's where the strength comes in. Hello? The Lord, through this church, will resurrect marriages regardless of whether I get married or not. You need to hear that. My marriage ministry is more successful than my singles ministry. I've got more couples married in counseling back together than I've ever gotten singles to stay away from each other. Your marriage and your understanding of marriage has nothing to do with whether I get married or not. As members of this house, I need to kill that lie. I love marriage. I was raised with a strong set of parents. Do you understand? I'm an advocate for it. It was the Lord's will, apparently, so far, that I don't marry. And I'm okay with that. But I still want it for whoever God wants to give it to. Because it is a beautiful way to display his glory. Do you understand? All right. Because they try to use that. Well, maybe I ain't going to get married. No, the women going to get married because the, wife, the, the, the pastor ain't even married. What? 
What does that, what does that mean? But does the pastor understand love? Self-sacrifice. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I think you'll be all right. I think you'll be all right. Can she be chaste? Uh-huh. Can she control her flesh? Uh-huh. Right. I think you'll be all right. Okay. Amen. And that's what I'm trying to say. The example that you need in order to be a spouse, I do provide whether I'm not married or not. Okay. You just have to follow me as I follow Christ. The insides. Because every man in this church be like, she do be speaking man language to us. And every girl be like, she do be speaking like a woman. To Amen? Amen? That is the Lord. All right. So he says, you want to divorce, divorce. Okay, now go to verse 10. He said, so verse 9 says, and if, you, if I say to you, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Look at what the disciples said, not the Pharisees. <laughs> the disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. What? 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 The disciples are so down bad with women. They, are hor they have had horrible experiences of dating and marriage. And there's a proof right there. See, nobody even saw that right there. You thought they was perfect. They are not. They were probably terrible husbands. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The wife was probably, yes, please go with Jesus. <laughs> Be a disciple, golly. <laughs> I joke, I joke. Because they're, what, he's, what they're saying is, it is going to be so rare that we are going to marry someone and that works. And then, because we pick poorly and it doesn't go to the end, I can't remarry anymore. So they're saying, it's just better that I just... Just don't marry at all. It ain't no way this is going to work. The first one ain't going to ever work. And I'm not supposed to have a second one. That's how down bad they are about marriage. And a lot of you have the same ideas. Marriages don't work. They never work. La, 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 la. They do work. I've seen them. You just have to learn how to love. And it's not on Instagram. And it's not on TikTok. And it ain't about the Karma Sutra. It ain't about how much of a... Okay? It ain't about how much of a weird baker you could be, okay? It's, it's not about that. It's not in that. It's not. And all the, the commentary about married couples just try to show what women and men are supposed to do, not who they're supposed to be. So the only thing we understand about gender is there are roles for men and there are roles for women. And that is not biblical. It's just not. It's not. It's submission. One to another. All of us are going to be priests. Everybody, girls and boys. It's not about that. It's about love. My dad is a chef. Okay? My mom, she could cook. Yes. Hello? But when she couldn't cook because she was ill, daddy, no problem. Took it over. And I used to love getting some food. All right? To this day, right? Some couples, you're going to have a different setup in roles. Just because you're the man doesn't mean you're supposed to make all the monetary decisions considering you suck <laughs> at making monetary decisions. But you've been taught that in order to be a man and a good husband, I got to get better at this. No, get better at you 
and find somebody that compliments what you're not good at or can at least handle what you don't do well. She'll tell you, baby, you real bad with numbers. Stop doing that. Let me. She'll be honest, babe. Babe, stop doing that. That's not your thing. A man need to say, baby, baby, I prefer when you cook. Oh, stop giving me all this fast food. Can you do that for me? Or you can't cook. Let, let, just, let's, let's go out. I got dinner money all day. <laughs> I could order whatever you want. <laughs> Maybe you're not a cook, right? Maybe you're not good at cooking. That does not mean you're not capable of being a wife. And this is how the this is how the word of God has been distorted to only make gender about roles and responsibilities and not authentically about how God created them to complement and to show his glory. Many many are gone on a man that was good with a hammer. They, I'm better than men in this house at renovating this church. And I am a female. <laughs> I'm a female. <laughs> right? Men, some men are better at cooking. Yeah. Better at baking. Yeah. Do you understand? Some women are better at driving. Sit over on the other side, you reckless so-and-so. <laughs> but you, do you understand how even the church has made gender about roles? Yeah. And this means to, as to, means to those of us that are growing up, that if we don't fit, and if we're not good at those roles, then maybe we're not supposed to be male. Or maybe we're not supposed to be female. Because we're not good at those things. Because I, I don't really have an affinity for that. I really don't like cooking. I really, I really don't like fixing things. I really don't like being a strong. I don't like yelling. I don't like making decisions. Maybe I'm not good at that. I don't like it, so now I don't fit. Because no one said, gender with God has nothing to do with roles. Nothing to do with roles, but the essence of how he determined for you to be displayed. How he wanted you to be, dis how he want, I want you to show me like this. Oh, I'm going to hook you up with him or her and y'all together. Y'all going to show me like this. Bam. And the fruit of you together showing God to be beautiful is that child. Hello? Okay, I'll move on. <laughs> when we don't understand the purpose of gender in God, and that's not about roles or responsibilities, about what you wear, what your body type is, but a woman has a womb for a very distinct purpose, and a man has not a womb for very distinct purposes. I have a grown man living in my house with my baby cousin, Mar Mar. I love him dearly. He had an injury recently. <laughs> and he had just explained some things to me that I didn't quite understand. Because I am not a male. So I got to call other men. What does this mean? And what should he do? Got it. Because I am a female. He's uniquely different. Do you understand? And all I had was my daddy. Hello? I ain't had no brothers. Growing up, I put some clothes on. What? Every time he come out the shower with a shirt up, I'm like, you should put a shirt on. Wait a minute. You are a boy. You are allowed to do that. You are allowed. Because I'm used to girls. Put, you better tie them up. I got rules in my house. 
if you ever had to stay with me, that no woman is allowed to be free. You must be secure. You must be secure until you go to your chambers. When you're in your chambers, you can be free. When you're walking around my house, secure. Very secure. Hello? All right. I take you guys to feeling free now, huh? What would it look like? What would it look like if you could now focus on who you are, who you are as it relates to your gender and not apart from it? Who you are as it relates to your intimacy and not apart from it? Like what if intimacy and cake baking was not some secret, dirty, tawdry thing that you did in a corner behind closed doors? but rather it was an understanding of a blessing that God gave you to display his glory in a very particular way. It is a calling and a gift. And it is not given to you just because you are a male. The world has taught our men that because they are males, they should bake cakes. And taught the women, because we are female, we should stop people from baking cakes. So now there's this inner tension always and a power trip about baking cakes versus both people recognizing in order to be married and to bake a cake, God has to call me to that. It is not just some automatic privilege that I get because I'm male or because I'm female. And that's why we have so many problems with homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because people don't want to adhere to the norms because it's clear that's not working. And the church says, well, you don't fit the roles that we set out for you, so you're out. That's not right. It's not right. If you're a man, you were born a male, you're a male. And you're going to be a male whether you get married or not. And if you're a female, you were born a female, and you're going to be that whether you get married or not. And God still has glory, but to get married is a calling. Do you believe that pastoring is a calling? Can you see how you have to be uniquely called to this job? Can you, can you th can, do you think that leading praise and worship is a calling? Yes. Can you see how you have to be uniquely called to that? Yes. So is marriage. So is marriage. And everyone does not have to be married. The issue here is that you've attached your worth as a man and you've attached your worth as a woman based off of whether someone picks you. So now women have an insatiable desire. Please pick me. Please tell me that I have value. What do I need to do? Look like this, look like that, look like this. Tell me what I got to do. What? Constant. And the men are like, yeah, do something for me. Do something for me. Who's for me? Who's for me? Who's for me? Who's for me? Where you at? Where you at? You? Who's mine? Who's mine? Who's mine? Constant. But if you looked at it like a pastor, a unique calling, You'll start evaluating yourself, not based off of your sexual needs, but based off of your character and personality. Do I have the personality to be married? Do I have the character? Can I sing in order to lead praise and worship? Can I submit as a man 
can I submit as a woman? Can I let somebody feel like my body is theirs? Uh Uh-uh. Don't get married. But because no one is considering it a calling, but an entitlement, because of their gender differences, marriages are not working. It's embarrassing as a pastor how much work needs to be done to get people to stop having premarital sex. Like, what is, what is happening? Why is this an option, dear Christian? Why is this? I'm like, well, how did you get to his house, huh? How did you get, dear Christian, how did you get to his, how did you get to her house? Dear Christian, I don't even know how you got there. Do you know how many choices you have to make as a believer in order to sin sexually? It ain't just one choice. It's a whole bunch of choices. And you look at me like I'm crazy when I say, what is wrong with you? You are a believer and you had to jump through way too many hurdles to get to that. So when I say you are not well, you are not healed, I mean it because you profess to be a believer, but you don't, you don't even see all the hurdles you have to jump over in order to sin. No, you blind as a bat and you think you can see. No, 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 no. You're not healed. You can't be. What I expect is that you picked up the phone and dialed the number. And then hung up. What I expect is you saw him in the grocery store. Hey, and you wanted to buy, and you just left. Never left. You just left. This is what I, yes, I expect you to, to be tempted. But to, is anybody tempted to be a pastor? <laughs> what? You don't walk in here and be like, one day I'm going to grab that mic. Oh, I can't wait to get that mic. It's just something about that mic. I just want that mic. I just want that mic. I can't wait till I get to sit in that seat. Somebody said in my seat the other day, I said, you like that seat? He was like, it's all right. I said, you want that seat? You think you called to that seat? I don't know. Oh, okay. But that seat is tempting, isn't it? Real tempting. Says nobody. But pastoring is very much so like marriage. So is it that you want to be married? Or that you want to gratify your flesh. Is it that you want to be married? Or that you want to gratify your flesh? Because the work of adding discipline to your flesh is harder than getting someone to sleep with you. Uh uh. I'm a female. And single. I can speak on it. The married pastors, they can't speak on how you could still live holy for years and years and years and years. How you could desire to be married and be okay if you don't get married. Oh, not you. I don't know what I'm going to do if God don't let me marry. I don't know who I'm going to be. And if you came to me and say, Pastor, I got to be a pastor. And if I don't be a pastor, I don't know who I am. What am I, am I going to encourage you to be a pastor? No, you ain't. Right. And if you don't know who you are, apart from being a husband, or who you're supposed to be, apart from being a wife, you should not be getting married. 
or dating. Why are you dating if you ain't ready to get married, dear Christian? Why are you dating if you're not ready to be married, dear Christian? Why don't you just say what they are, a cut buddy? Y'all still got them? Why don't they say just a number to your body count? Why don't you just say what that is? And when I try to tell the women, he's not that much into you, you need to leave him alone, you don't know, you're trying to stop me from having something good. No, no, that's not true at all. So he said, it's impossible to just be single that, that long and not, and not, no, it's not impossible. And at some stages, it ain't even that hard. The only reason you think that it's going to be so hard is because you are so in your flesh that you think everything is about you and the physicality of this earth. Versus your spirit man and the eternal glory of heaven. That's why it's so hard for you. Because you like the world. Yeah. YOLO. That's, that's how you're living. I might be missing something. I might be missing that club. I might be missing that music. I might be missing somebody to tell me I'm, I'm handsome. I'm sexy. I'm fine. And for the most part, it ain't even that you need to date for relationships. You just want the attention. Again, the reason why we have so much same-sex attraction everywhere yeah. is because every young person yeah. is craving attention. Yeah. Because they have a device in their hands that show other people getting attention where they measure how much attention each person gets and they contribute to that person's attention and everybody says that this person is worthy of attention and so now you have to have attention so now anybody that says I think you fine you're going to say okay well maybe I should try it you just want somebody to want you do you know how sick you are now I don't mean that derogatorily I mean that in truth, that you are truly not healed if you just need people to like you, to be attracted to you in order for you to feel truly that you have value, that you're pretty, that you're handsome. Something is wrong with you. If you're not in my office, you need to be. Because some of y'all ain't come to my desk and you got the same issues. So now everybody's thinking maybe, now and kids growing up, to, to be straight, like one, one, and not multiple, just one, is weird. Yeah. It's like you're not cool if you're not trying other stuff. Yeah. You're closed-minded. Yeah. Right? And you know how many kids have been tried by same sex? No. Every child practically has been tried at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, would, I think you'd be scarce to find. I mean, hard-pressed. They're not going to tell you that. No, not. But I talk to people. I talk to kids. I like knowing what's going on. And they think it's something wrong with them because they don't understand gender as a believer and love and intimacy as a believer that somehow sex does not have a place in Christianity. And it is the biggest aspect of Christianity.
It should be marriage. It should be something like, wow, what an honor. Like, oh, you one of them folk that sacrifice everything for one another. Whew. So, like, you got to ask her if you can go, and she got to ask you if you can go. If she can go, whew, that's tough. I don't know if I can live like that. That's what it's supposed to look like. So you got to go to work and you got to share all your money? Oh, whew, I don't know if I can do that. Whew. What you're saying is, I don't think I'm called. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're not called to be married. You just want to have sex. And you need your identity to be established by somebody else. You can't feel present and comforted with Christ alone. So now you're lonely. Like Christ is not real enough to you yet. So that when you're by yourself, you don't feel lonely. I am by myself before Shamar got all the time. I love it. I love it. I love being around my members and I love going home by myself. So Janiah told me, Pastor, I used to look at your, I'm using. She came and told me recently, she said, Pastor, I used to look at your life and go, her life's so boring. So she told me to my face. She said, I used to look at your life and go, who would want that? Did she just go, go to church, come home, and ain't nobody in here, just her by herself and her dogs? I don't want to be that safe. Then she fell and bumped her head and recognized, I'd rather have peace. Y'all don't want to help me today. I'd rather have peace. I'd rather have peace. I'd rather have peace than have conflict, than have sin, than have turmoil. I'd rather have peace. How you handle being by yourself, Jeffine? Now everybody's struggling with that. Shut up. <laughs> you think it's something wrong with us. It's you. <laughs> something wrong with you. You the diseased one. Not us. The ones that can be whole with Christ alone and not feel lonely. We're fine. You're off. I hope you feel crunchy. Because that is the intent. Because somebody needs to tell you the truth. That you're not just here on this earth to make babies. And you're not just here on this earth to be married. There are whole other reasons why God has you here. And that is only one part of one reason. And there's so many more. But you're so busy trying to gratify your flesh and trying not to be like your mama or your daddy that you're not even learning why he got you here specifically as a male and specifically as a female. My femininity shows up in my pastoring, and I like it. I cannot preach like a man. I cannot pastor like a man, nor should I. The men in this house, listen to me because they hear God's voice. Because they always going to see female. <laughs> I preach from my femininity. I wear garments that say I'm all girl because it's sparkly. And it's a dress. And I can twirl in it. I talk about my hair and my makeup. I talk about being insecure. I preach as a female. And God still anoints it. What is he waiting to anoint in you that you can't see because all you see is marriage? That's good. 
What if there's something unique? Like when my dad is a chef, there's something unique to how he can. I've been in a kitchen before. I worked at a kitchen one day as an intern, like a bustling kitchen. Okay, now I didn't know what daddy went through. This is before they had cooking shows, all right? And, you know, the, the real life, you know, it was before that. And so I'm in the kitchen, and all they're doing is yelling. Order up, number five, number three, number four, chop it hot, number two, number three, slide it on, all right, on the red. And they be speaking Spanish, 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 Spanish. <laughs> Give me a pronto, expedition, oh, come on, it's on the fire, what? <laughs> I was on the line like, I got to pick the salad, oh, need a salad, I got to start, oh, 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 is that my fries? Oh, okay. At some point, they just put me back in the, in the prep station. We just cutting up stuff. <laughs> Getting things ready for the real chefs. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. There's a reason why there's more men in true restaurants than there are women. Not that women can't do it. Because a woman called to be a true chef is unique. It's awe-inspiring. She deserves credit for that. Do you understand? Like, she's strong. But that don't mean everybody should be a chef. Do you understand? I want you to feel crunchy because I want you to recognize you have to be called to marriage. It's not an entitlement because you are a specific gender. And in this house, so you might as well start leaving now, you're going to have to show me that you are called to marry. I'm going to see them tithe numbers go up. <laughs> I'm going to see your expenses go down. I'm going to see you serving when you're tired. I'm going to see you smiling when you're mad. Oh, I'm going to see it all. And when I don't, I'm going to say no. Do you understand that? All right. Last scripture. I truly, I'll tell you this last one, and we're going home. And I'm only going to use highlights of it. I'm going to use the whole thing. Go to John, St. John. Ooh. What I'm going to need y'all to do is stop giving me the evil eye. <laughs> y'all see the back of each other's heads. Let me show you what some of the faces scattered throughout look like. Not quite mean, just. I'm like, go to John. They ain't even, they ain't even go to their Bible, just. What's the point of going to Bible? He's going to say some more stuff I don't want to hear. Why did I go to that scripture? And I need my other crush to know that I'm not even with this sermon. Over there trying to sneak notes. Think I look and be mad. I'm mad. Set fire on them. Some, some of y'all don't, don't know. This is, some of the new folk, y'all don't know, this is the real me. This, this, is the, this, is, this is the real me. I will cut you with the word of God and enjoy doing it. I don't care about your feelings. What I care about is you making it to heaven. And your feelings have been getting in the way for a very long time. So if I cut every last one of them, it's because I want to. I want to. Are you feeling upset? Do you think I'm talking about you? I am. Are you talking directly to me? Yes. It's because I dealt with same sex? Yes. It's because I was having premarital sex? Yes. 
Is it because I was addicted to porn? Yes. Is it because I got divorced? Yes. I am talking to you. Don't you even got to give me no evil look. I meant to do it. It's intentional. Pastor, when you were saying that, was that from you? Mm-hmm. You have made your entire purpose for being here about physical, tangible things. When the part of you that will live forever is not that. So you're working on everything that is temporary. And I'm trying to teach you how to work on the things that are everlasting. Because if those things are not in place, you're not going to heaven. Fornicators do not go to heaven. Liars don't go to heaven. Adulterers don't go to heaven. Those who are cowards don't go to heaven. Well, how do I know if I'm that? How often do you do it? Now, I'm going to use Shamar's example. When Shamar came, first came to me, it's not, it's not like that, it's not like that. He said, I don't eat cheese, cousin. He said, I don't even eat cheese, cuz. I was like, I don't, he said, I don't like cheese like that. I was like, I understand. He said, you know, I'm lactose intolerant. I don't eat cheese like that. I don't even like it like that. I was like, cool. But in the process, I accidentally, he accidentally kept putting cheese on stuff. He's like, no, nah, my stomach going to be messed up, but I'm going to go ahead and eat it. And another time, he was like, oh, my stomach going to be messed up, but it's going to be worth it. And so we all thought, Shamar don't like cheese. And then he'd be like, well, some cheeses I do like, like pepper jack. And some dairy, I, can, I will eat it because I'll eat that ice cream because it's worth it. And so now we be thinking, dude, you can't keep saying you don't like cheese. <laughs> Where three out of the five meals we've ordered, you've had cheese on them. You, gotta, you, have, a, you have a specific taste for cheese. And it has to be really good and worth an upset tummy for you to eat cheese. I get that. Let's say that. Because if you're eating cheese, you're a cheeser. It don't matter if you only ate the cheese that was pepper jack. Like I only ate the one that I thought we was going to get married. that situation and the answer is no you ain't getting none until you give me a ring he said I ain't gonna give you a ring till you quit that church I said well I guess we won't be married no I'm not new to this I'm extremely true to this the Lord has anointed me for this and I have sacrificed a lot to bear his anointing for you these are your blessings Let's be clear. Why you want to talk about me not being married? Let's be clear. And ain't nobody told me. I just know your personality type. So these... Liars, fornicators, adulterers, 
they are not going to enter the kingdom. And I know that the, the number of people in church that do these things make you feel like somehow it's okay. And I am telling you, it's not okay. It could be the whole church sexing around. Hello? And it's still not okay. The leader could have premarital sex and do all kinds of foolishness. It is still not okay. Do you understand? It ain't okay. Then what you gonna do? Because you can only be safe for you. Just for you. He ain't gonna compare you to somebody else. He's gonna say, what did my word say? What you gonna say? Well, everybody was doing it. Now, it didn't work in high school. It ain't gonna work on judgment day. The issue is that our young adults are growing up to only care about their physical lives, their careers, their money, who they will marry. And they're not growing up to care about who they are. That's why there's so, so much fluidity in gender. Because that's irrelevant. I should have fit, just go to what fits me. No, no, something can fit you and still don't wear it. Take it off. No, don't, don't put that on. Why? Because who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? And you think God made a mistake on something that important? No, think about it. If male and female is the epitome of all of creation and reflects life and fruitfulness and God himself, you think he made a mistake about your gender? Or is it that you have a misunderstanding about roles and gender and a misunderstanding about the importance of gender because it ain't about that. There's either male nor female in the spirit. That's Bible. What if you spent more time learning about God and less time trying to figure out who's going, who you're going to marry? You might see yourself better. Some of the parents, y'all kids are almost grown. You need to focus on the Lord because they're getting tired of you focusing on them. They don't, I'm telling you, you need, you need another hobby. You need a hobby like grow spiritually. You do. You need a hobby like get to know the Lord. That take up a lot of time. And young adults, y'all ain't free. Jeremiah was called at 11. What you been called to do? Duty. Call her duty. <laughs> your vocation and your ministry calling are just things that you do, but they are not who you are. Do you understand that? Some of you have made yourselves only a mother and only a father to your own detriment with your silly self. Jesus. Only a wife, only a husband. And when he's gone, I don't know who I am. What the most to do with my time? I don't know. The kids are growing up. I don't know what to do. Oh, the Lord doesn't love me. I'm so depressed. So you never figured out who you were apart from this? In all the years? The kid is what, 20? Yet, in them 20 years, you just never thought, you know what, as a pastime, let me figure out who I am. 
And so y'all with young kids, let it be a warning. Your pastime for mothering and fathering needs to be getting to know the Lord, not getting another spouse. You're going to get caught up. Are we there? I told you this is my last scripture. Do you see this in John? The header says Jesus and the woman of Samaria. John chapter 4. Oh, I didn't give you all the chapter. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was all excited. It's okay, I'll redo it. I'll redo it like we all on the same page. It's cool. I'm going to redo it. Y'all there? You ready? Do you see this? <laughs> Do you see that, Hannah? <laughs> it's Jesus and the Samaria woman at the what? At the well. Check this. All good women are found at the well. And they're just not at any old well. They're at Jacob's well, which is slang for Israel's well. They're at the well of the Jewish people exactly. Are you there? Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Hello. It's the mute cute time. It's time. Good women at the well. A foreigner shows up traveling from a far distant land. Shows up to the well. Pazam. Tells you, hey you, give me a drink. Can you imagine if Jesus showed up on a dating app and was like, hey, What's up, queen? Your smile is enchanting. And it was Jesus. You'd be like, you ready. You ready to start flirting off the top. I'm about to put my A game on. You go back to the pictures. Mm-hmm, A game. All right, what's the funniest thing I got? Mm, right? She's ready. This is the time a man from a distant land comes to the woman. He says, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Wait, stop, hold up. According to the, the, the way things work at the well, it's not supposed to go this way. See, every Jew that is reading the story and seeing this, they're going, no, the man come to the well he said, give me a drink. You give him a drink. You live happily ever after. This well story has taken a turn. So now everybody's like, what the heck is going on? I thought this was a love story. Right? She said, why are you asking for water from me? Jesus answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and we, he would have given you living water. He said, the issue is not that you don't know God. It's that you don't know the gift of God. You have no understanding of the gift of marriage. It's a gift. It's a calling. And because you don't understand it, let's keep reading. He says, if you would have known who I am and the gift of God and that I am that gift, I would have gave you living waters. And she's like, well, give me this living water. You ain't even got a barrel to pull it up with. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, Jesus says. But whoever drinks this of this water, this is verse 13, that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him beco will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
They're at a well, and he's trying to say to a woman at the well that I will give mankind wells on the inside. Okay, she's a female who already has a well. But Jesus is saying to the female and to the male, I will give you a well. I'll give you a well that springs up to everlasting. The life that you're seeking, I will put it in you. And every time, you can just go drink from that. Drink from everlasting. You'll go to church and you'll be like, I need to be reformed. I need to be renewed. Rather than, I hope pastor don't talk about that. Hope she don't talk about this. You go, please talk about this. Tap this well. Move this stone. Take the stone off the well. Let this stuff flow because something is stopping me from enjoying the presence of God. Something is making me feel lonely. Something is making me feel depressed. Something is making me want to give up. Something is making me feel discouraged. Unstop my well. You should be looking for that. If not, you are going to die in your sins. So apparently they had some drama with the Samaritans. The Samaritans felt like the Jews should have worshipped here in Samaria. The other Jews thought they were going to worship where the temple was, and so they were split. And now the Samaritans were looked down upon from the Israelites because they were like a mixed breed. And they're holding true to their identity, and this is why she said, you don't even fool up with us. Let's keep reading. So the woman said to him, verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I would not be thirsty or have to come and draw, come here to draw water. Stop. This woman, in the analogy, no, in the allegory, thank you, in the allegory of water to salvation, water to woman, man to husband, and the well, this, she's asking him, give me what I need to never have to feel that I have to come to the well in order to have life. Remember, all the good women went to the well to get married. And she says, tell me, tell me, what do I have to do, all right, to stop coming to this well, to stop trying to pull from this well? I, I, I need water. Can, if you can give me something that just always makes, gives me water whenever I need it, that gives me affection whenever I need it, that gives me attention whenever I need it, that gives me love whenever I need it, that gives me forgiveness whenever I need it, can it give me conversation whenever I need it? If you could give me that so I can stop coming to this well. He's like, I got you. I got you. And she didn't understand. So Jesus said, go get your husband. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. A duh. Because you at the well. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Do you see this example? Genesis starts with a marriage, a meet cute, right? Countless women go to good wells. Good women go to wells to get married by men that are appointed to them under the ordinances of God, right? And then the entire story ends in a marriage. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Now here there's a well where the bridegroom, the bridegroom comes to the well 
to find what should have been his bride at Jacob's well. Israel should have been the bride. Y'all not trying to help me today. But the bride has had five husbands. And the one you're with, oh, come on now, is not your husband. Israel has been with God, left God, with God, left God, with God, left God. Five times. And now you're not even with him now. You're with a, a Porsche, something like him. See, the idea is she's got a man, but it's not her husband. And he's saying, Israel, you've got a faith, but it's not the faith of God. Israel, you've got a belief system, but it's not through Christ. He's showing you right there. And the one you're with ain't your husband. It's me. It's me. So what does she do in true form? She runs and goes, tells the girls and the family, I found someone. He comes. He talks to them. They ask him to stay for dinner. And he stays. The wedding that transpires from here. Y'all don't want to help me. The wedding that transpires from the bridegroom and his bride is not going to be Israel, but he's showing it's going to be a mix like a Samaritan woman of the body of Christ coming down in all her glory, being the glory and splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ, having that holy, holy ground standing all over the house. Come on, let's pray. To every man that struggles with flesh, let's pray. To every woman that struggles with flesh, let's pray. Let's repent of the lust of the eye and the gratification of the flesh. Let's put to rest that the idea of holiness is so far from us. And to see the gift of the Spirit as the very promise that we can accomplish it. Come on, let's pray. Every heart is lifted before the Father, saying, you be the one that gives me the attention. You be the one that gives me value. You be the one that sets my idea of who I am and gives me my identity. You be the one. You be the one that heals my heart, the one I run to when something good is happening and the one I run to when something bad is happening. If you're not married, come on in. If you are, tell the Lord you be the one. 